come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return, for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each, for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Thanks very much. You might like to keep your Bibles open so we can follow through the passage together. When was the last time you received good news? Really good news. Maybe it was simply the good news that friends that you hadn't seen for a long time were coming to visit for the weekend. Perhaps you applied for a job that you really wanted and you get that phone call offering it to you. Or your daughter has been expecting her first child and you receive the good news of the birth and that mother and baby are both doing well. There are all kinds of things, aren't there, that we welcome as good news. But if I was to ask any of you, if any of those were comparable to the good news of God's salvation in Jesus, I would expect, indeed I would hope, that your answer would be no. Certainly not the good news of the friends coming to visit, nor the new job, not even the birth of your grandchild. But apparently here in chapter 6, or chapter 3 and verse 6, we come across the only place that this word good news is used in the New Testament for anything other than the good news of what we call the gospel, the good news of God's saving actions in Jesus. That has to be significant, doesn't it? Paul receives the good news of Timothy's report about these believers in Thessalonica with the same welcome as the good news of God's salvation in Jesus. Now, when I was a child, there was a children's song which emphasized this good news, and Andrew recognized the lyrics immediately this morning. It was printed on folding card, made look like a newspaper, and the words simply went like this, good news, good news, Christ died for me, good news, good news, if I believe, good news, good news, I'm saved eternally, that's wonderful, extra good news. And when you came to that last line, you were encouraged to shout out the words extra as loud as you possibly could. So feel free to join in with me. That's wonderful, good news. Well, it seems that Paul receives the good news of Timothy's report with such excitement that you can almost hear him shouting out those words, 
It's wonderful. Good news. So what is this good news? Well, the good news of Timothy's report is that the good news of the gospel has been effective in the lives of those in Thessalonica who had put their trust in Jesus. He writes in verse 6, Timothy has just come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and love. The good news was that those who had trusted Jesus as Savior, when Paul first preached the good news of Jesus to them, those same people were still trusting and following Jesus. Now that is wonderful, extra good news. Because in the previous verse, Paul has revealed his greatest fear. Look with me at verse 5. It's the very reason that Paul had sent Timothy to find out about these believers in the first place. He writes, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent out about, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. It's always discouraging, isn't it, to discover that our efforts have been useless. You've been working hard all year to get the grades that you need to progress in your studies, only to fall short and to miss out on the course that you really wanted. It can feel as though all of that effort has been completely useless. Or you've been helping a friend paint a room in their house and they leave you with the paint and the room and let you get on with the job. But when they return, well, they decide that the color isn't really what they were expecting and they don't like it at all and they want to repaint it a different color. All of your hard work has been useless. It's always discouraging when we discover that our very best efforts have been completely useless. Well, Paul had endured great hardship in his short time in Thessalonica. The proclamation of the good news of Jesus had come at great personal cost, both to himself and to others. If those who had trusted Jesus were no longer following Jesus, well, it would have been completely useless. But Timothy's report immediately alleviates Paul's fears because Timothy returns to tell Paul about a love that lasts. Paul had feared that in some way the tempter might have tempted you, but quite the opposite is the case in verse 6. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. In a very short time, a mutual bond of love and affection had formed between those who had believed the good news and the one who had proclaimed the good news. The reception that they had given Paul wasn't short-lived. It was a love that lasts. After Paul had fled from Thessalonica, these new believers endured terrible persecution. And Paul's fear is that they, they would simply look back on him as someone who had stirred up trouble for them. 
that man Paul was the worst thing that ever happened to us. He turned the whole city against us. We should never have listened to him. He has ruined our lives. But no, you always have pleasant memories of us. They look back on Paul and Timothy's visit with deep affection. And they long to see Paul and Timothy just as much as Paul and Timothy long to see them. Yes, we're told back in chapter 2 and verse 17 that they had been torn away, but only in person, not in thought. This love that lasts was an indication that Paul's efforts had not been useless. This mutual love and affection could only explain by the fact that they were brothers and sisters in the family of God. Those who had trusted Jesus were still following Jesus. The good news of the gospel had been effective in their lives. That's wonderful, extra good news. But Timothy not only reports of a love that lasts, but a faith that endures. Remember, Paul had feared that in some way the tempter might have tempted you, but quite the opposite is the case in verse 7. In all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. It's as though Paul lies awake at night, turning in his bed, concerned that those who had trusted Jesus were still following Jesus, for there is no more fearful thing than to turn away from the living God. The thought of it, we're told in verse 1, is almost too much for Paul to bear. The evil one had caused havoc in Thessalonica, stirring up terrible hardship for these new believers. And Paul has been concerned that they will have turned away, that they will have given up on Jesus. But instead, Timothy returns with this good news of a faith that endures. In fact, if you go back all the way to chapter one, you'll discover that it's a thriving faith. These people have been a model to all the believers in the region. Their faith in God was talked about everywhere. This was a faith that lasts. Now, these are two of the marks of a genuine follower of Jesus. A love that lasts and a faith that endures. And for this reason, Paul receives Timothy's report as wonderful, extra good news. Because Paul's greatest fear was also his deepest joy. His greatest fear was that those who had trusted Jesus were no longer following Jesus. And his greatest joy was to discover that those who had trusted Jesus were still following Jesus. Look at verse 9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. I wonder if you've ever considered that your greatest fears and your deepest joys are inextricably linked. 
You see, our fears and our joys reveal what we value most in life. The things that keep us awake at night and the things that get us out of bed in the morning reveal our priorities in life. And those things in which we find joy are the same things that we fear losing. So what do your fears and your joys reveal about you? What do you value most in life? What is it that occupies your prayers? And not just because you keep a nice, neat, orderly list of people and things to pray for, but what moves you to pray earnestly? Progression in your career, longing for a relationship, financial security, the education of your children, your physical health and mental well-being. What about the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Does the knowledge that someone hasn't been to church for a number of weeks cause you any concern at all? Would it move you to pray earnestly for them for fear that the tempter might have tempted them? I remember something that I heard in a radio interview some time ago, though I have no idea who was being interviewed or who was doing the interviewing. It was a statement that struck me with some force. The woman being interviewed said, when I had children, I realized that I would never be happy again. And that made me sit up and listen to what she was about to say. She wasn't advocating not having children, nor expressing regret over having had her own. But what she went on to explain was that her emotional life, her happiness or unhappiness, was now forever tied up in the lives of her children. Now, it seems to me that Paul is describing a very similar thing here. His emotional life, his greatest fears and his deepest joys are tied with the spiritual welfare of his children in the faith. Those who have come to trust in Jesus through his ministry. Even in the midst of all their distress and persecution, Paul and Timothy had been encouraged by the faith of these believers. And it's as though the knowledge that they were standing firm in the Lord was life-giving to the Apostle Paul. Now we really live, he writes in verse 8. Now we really live. It's as if Paul is struggling to breathe, gasping for breath, unsure for how much longer he can keep going until he receives the life-giving news that these believers have a love that lasts and a faith that endures. Marcus Luan writes of Paul, he had been brought back, as it were, from the edge of the grave. If all Paul's efforts to preach the good news about Jesus could be undermined by the evil one once Paul moved on, well, the good news wouldn't be good news at all. Rather, all of his efforts would have been useless. But it was not useless. And the news of their faith and love breathed new life 
into his struggling body and soul. Now, all of that to say that the Apostle Paul's emotional life was connected to the spiritual well-being of his children in the Lord. Now, can I suggest something to you? Something that has been of growing concern to all and myself over the last couple of years, no doubt because of our own experience. And it's about the emotional lives of pastors, of all pastors, of your pastors, that you may not have considered before. And maybe something that's easier for me to say tonight than it might be in the future. Their emotional lives their greatest fears and deepest joys are intricately connected with your spiritual well-being. I remember someone coming to me after I was first appointed to pastoral ministry who gave me this word of advice, remember, it's only a job. That was their understanding of ministry, that you could separate out easily your personal life and ministry and that the two parts didn't need to overlap at all. I'd love to know how the Apostle Paul would have responded to that comment. Remember, it's only a job. Because he found the weight of not knowing how these believers were doing unbearable. It kept him awake at night. It was as though he was dying and the good news that they were still following Jesus revived him, breathing life into him again. So can I encourage you simply to pray for your pastors, to be considerate of your pastors because your spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of this church directly impacts their personal lives and the lives of their families. They can't be neatly compartmentalized so that one has no effect on the other. At least they couldn't in my life. And they couldn't in the life of the Apostle Paul. For his greatest fear was inextricably linked to his greatest joy. Now, there's a church that I sometimes preached in when our children were younger in Killarney, in County Kerry. They were a small group of believers at the time, and we would all sit in a circle facing one another. And at some point in the service, there would be a sharing time when someone might read from the scriptures or pray or share a conversation they'd had with a friend during the week. But there was one man in particular who, much to the amusement of our children, moved seamlessly from talking to praying and back to talking again. We never knew whether our eyes were meant to be open or closed, our heads bowed or upright. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does here and in many of his letters. He moves seamlessly from addressing the Thessalonians to whom he is writing, to God in heaven to whom he is praying. Paul's thoughts move from the good news he has received to the one who makes the good news good news. You see, Paul didn't sit back having received this news and think to himself, what a great job I did in Thessalonica. That these new believers are still following Jesus. 
how well I prepared them for persecution, how well I grounded them in their faith, what wonderful evangelism training I did with them. I'm so glad I did that loving your church course. What a great church planter am I. No, there's no room for pride. Only thanksgiving in verse 9. And so he naturally turns to the one who makes the good news good news. Because this love that lasts and this faith that endures is ultimately because God has been at work. Because he is the one who makes the good news good news. Paul prays in verse 11 to the God who is sovereign over evil. Here's what he writes. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Now if you look back in chapter 2 and verse 17, you'll see that it has been Paul's intense longing to see them again. But he writes in chapter 2 and verse 18 that Satan stopped us. Now that's an intriguing statement, isn't it? Wouldn't we love to know exactly what that means? But something had hindered Paul from returning to Thessalonica, even though he wanted to, and he recognizes Satan to be the one behind it. Satan had prevented him from caring for and discipling for these new believers as he had wanted to. But now he has every confidence that the Lord will clear the way for us to come to you. I remember one winter we had particularly bad snow. Now, we rarely have snow in West Cork, and when we do, it's not really worth reporting. But this snowfall had come and had stayed for days. The main roads had all been cleared, but the lane on which we live was still completely impassable. We were blocked in, and we could do nothing to find our way out. There was simply too much snow. But we had a friend who was a farmer, and he came over in his tractor and with great ease removed the snow from the lane so that we could get out. What was impossible for us was effortless to him. Satan had blocked the way, but the Lord will clear the way. Satan had done his best to quench the fledgling faith of these new believers, but Paul prays to the God who is sovereign over evil. And the God who can clear any obstacle that Satan puts in the way could also strengthen the faith of these new believers, even in the most intense of persecution. You see, he is the one who makes the good news good news. It's only because he was at work that their faith would not fail. The best attempts of Satan to get them to turn away from Jesus would not succeed because God is sovereign over evil. Paul prays in verse 12 to the God who increases the love of his children. He writes, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. It was the Lord who by his spirit had poured out his love into their hearts in the first place, and the same Lord would make their love increase and overflow. First towards each other. Isn't that what Jesus said would be the mark of his followers, that you will love another, one another? 
It's what identifies the children of God. Now, like any family, that love is tested at times. Relationships can be strained and difficult. But the Father's love for all of his children causes us to be committed to one another in love. That's not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. Because God pours his love into our hearts so that our love might increase and overflow for each other. But did you notice it's not limited to that? Our love is to increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. For everyone else. It's a love that not only increases in intensity, but in reach. It's an outward-facing love like the love of the Father himself. The Father's love is poured out into the hearts of his children so that we might show the Father's love to those who are not yet his children. That's not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. Because naturally, I could easily be content in my nice, cozy, loving church family with little or no thought of anyone else. But the love of God is not. He increases our love. He causes it to overflow. That's a love that doesn't come from us. It comes from him. The one who makes the good news, good news. Paul prays finally in verse 13 to the God who strengthens the hearts of his people. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Where does that desire for holiness come from? Well, I can easier answer the question, where does it not come from? It doesn't come from me. Any movements towards holiness in my life have only been because of the work of God's Spirit changing my desires from within, giving me a greater desire to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Any growth in godliness is ultimately only because God himself has been at work. You see, God has a clear goal in the lives of his people. His goal is to present me blameless before his throne when Jesus returns. And part of working towards that goal is to change our hearts so that we also desire the goal to which God himself is working. He strengthens the hearts of his people. This good news the good news that Paul welcomes as he hears this report from Timothy is that the one who saves those who trust in Jesus is the one who keeps those who trust in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, your growth and godliness is guaranteed, not ultimately because of the efforts you make towards holiness or the best intentions of those who disciple you, but because of the one who makes the good news, good news in the first place. He always finishes the work that he begins. Now that is wonderful, extra. 
Father, we thank you that you finish the work that you begin. And Father, we thank you as we look at what happened in the lives of those in Thessalonica so many years ago and the hardship that they faced. But just the reality that you were at work, that the best attempts of the evil one to cause them to turn away from Jesus did not succeed. We thank you that you are sovereign over evil. We thank you that you increase the love of your people. We thank you that you strengthen our hearts so that we desire the same things that you desire. Father, we pray then that we would not be contented to sit back in our lives as they are, but that we would look to you to continue to be at work in our lives. We pray that you would help us not to be content simply in the confines and comfortable space of our own loving church family, but that you would help us to look outwards, to see those around us, to welcome others into our midst, because that's what the love of God does. And Father, we thank you that ultimately this good news is good news because of the one who sent his son to be our saviour, who gives us his spirit to strengthen us from within and who will bring us into his eternal kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name.